You're about to hear a Lord's Day sermon that was preached at Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. This sermon comes from a series called That You May Believe. In this series, we take a long journey through the gospel according to John to discover who Jesus is and why it matters. We hope you enjoy this audio. Hear the word of the Lord from John 5, 30 to 47. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is, no, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is that they bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me. You may have life. I do not receive glory from people but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you can receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may take a seat. Well, good morning once again on this joyful baptism celebration. It's good to be with you. Um, I'm going to actually just jump right into it this morning. Uh, if, just for a bit of background, we've been working our way through John's gospel for the last couple of months. And this has been a really, really... I've. I've enjoyed this tremendously. I hope you have as why it matters. Um, and, and we have been in John chapter 5 the last couple of weeks. This is our last week in John chapter 5. And a complex, um, robust, uh, concentrated pieces of theology in all of the Bible. And so there's a lot to unpack here, and really we don't have time to do all of the unpacking that I would love to do. Um, But today we're going to get really to the heart of this message of what Jesus is trying to communicate here throughout John's gospel. And so if you would join me in saying a word of prayer, um, I'll pray for you, you pray for me, and we'll ask the Lord to show up to move and to minister to us through his spirit and the preaching of the word this morning. Father, we thank you that you are a God on the move. 
You are doing things that bring you glory. Um, and this morning as we celebrate baptism, we see that, that you are working to redeem sinners from, from sin, death, and the grave. And you accomplish this through the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus, for all who put their faith and trust in him. We celebrate with Sophia and her family this morning that, Lord, and we know that this is just a small sampling of what you are really up to. More and more people are being drawn to you uh, this day and throughout the ages. And we ask this morning, Lord, as, as your word is preached, that I would be able to rightly testify uh, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so that we would know the truth about Jesus and find life in his name. So would you help me, Lord, to have uh, clarity of mind and precision of speech? Would you help us to listen to your word, um, unstop our ears, open our eyes, soften our hearts to receive this message of good news that you have for us? And would you work in a way, Lord, that you would transform this church and the people in it from one degree of glory to the next, not for our own enjoyment, not, not for our own glory, but for all of the glory to be credited to you and your spirit and what you are doing in this place, Lord. We ask this for our joy and your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, like I said, part three of John chapter five today. Um, and this whole scene, if you haven't been with us, um, this whole scene of John chapter five starts with a miraculous healing at a poolside. Jesus is at Bethesda. It's, a, it's basically a colony of sick and, and lame and invalid people who have for years uh, been suffering. And Jesus steps foot in this and finds a man that's been suffering for 38 years with chronic illness. And right there on the spot, Jesus heals the man. He tells him, take up your bed and walk, you're healed. And the man does so. He picks up his bed just like that, and he walks for the first time in 38 years, and he's healed, which is incredible. This is actually astounding that something like this would happen, but there's a small group of people who don't find it quite as impressive, and those people are called the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees are introduced in John's gospel early on. They are the antagonists of Jesus, well, the primary antagonists of Jesus' ministry. And it's strange because they can't come from sort of a religious background. It's not the, the devil-worshiping pagan folks who are the most antagonistic towards Jesus. Some, most of those people are primed and eager to hear what Jesus has to say, his, his news about the kingdom of heaven. It's the people who are seeped in religiosity that are resistant and, and have a, a view of salvation that is antithetical to what Jesus is saying. And in their eyes, in the eyes of the Pharisees, what Jesus has done is not this really cool, exciting thing. What Jesus has done is he's broken some pretty serious rules. Um, I'm going to stab at pronouncing this correctly. The Hebrew word of what, what Jesus is breaking is the melachot. It's the 39 um, man-made rules that the Pharisees had developed to protect the fourth commandment of honoring the, the Sabbath day and keeping it holy. So they constructed a bunch of extra rules, um, and, and, and Orthodox Jews to this day still keep this set of rules to protect the Sabbath day. And as Jesus did this, well, the... They meet this guy who's been healed. He's breaking the commandment. He's carrying his mat, which is prohibited. Uh, and they find out that Jesus is the one that's responsible for telling him to pick up his mat and carry. They're upset with Jesus about this whole ordeal. And very quickly, we're told that, that the hostility that the Jews had from the beginning towards Jesus is escalated into this, what, what's called persecution. Now, 
when this word gets used, what it should make us think of is a, a sort of a courtroom setting. Um, the idea you've got the defense and you've got the persecution. You've got the, the, the people that are pressing the charges. That's what the Pharisees are doing. They say to Jesus, you've broken the commandment. You've broken uh, the melachot and, and you got to deal with the consequences. And to this accusation, Jesus responds in verse 17, in verse 17 and 18. Uh, and he says this, he says to them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is his justification for healing a man on the Sabbath. He's saying, my father's working, and because my father's working, I too am working. Now, this doesn't help Jesus' case. This makes things, as far as his, his view from the Pharisees, even more troubling. Um, as they hear this response, this is what happens in verse, verse 18. It says, this is why the Jews, or the Pharisees, were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath rules, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. So here you have two really serious charges in the eyes of the Pharisees. He's breaking the Sabbath, and even more important, he's claiming to be God in front of them. And this is communicated as Jesus expands even further, as we saw last week, that Jesus says that I am the son of God. I am the son of God who does what I see the father doing. In fact, I only do the things the father does. I only say the things the father says. And verse 30 says, I can do nothing apart from the father. And so Jesus is making it very clear that he is connected in a very unique way to God the father. He is the unique son of God. And then he takes it a step further. He says that you cannot honor God the Father without honoring the Son. So in order to honor God the Father, it's, and that's who the Pharisees really, they, they would say, that's who our allegiance belongs to. It's like we, we are worshiping uh, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And Jesus says, you cannot honor him without honoring me. And then Jesus goes on, last week we saw he's been given authority. The Father has granted the Son authority to judge the world. Now this whole thing is ironic. If we have a courtroom scene kind of working out here, like a mock trial, it's so ironic that the one who is going to judge the cosmos stands before these puny little men on trial, right? Do you see the irony in this? Yet Jesus listens to their charges and begins to refute them. He says, I am the judge of the world. There will be a judgment that, that those who believe will be raised to the resurrection of light, and those who do not believe will face a resurrection of judgment. Jesus then says that I am the Savior. I am the one who grants life as I will. Now, this is, this is an incredibly profound claim that Jesus is making. I mean, you could, just, could you just imagine if one of your buddies shows up one day and just says, hey, by the way, just so you know, I'm God. You gotta worship me, right? That would not fly. Yet Jesus is here making this massively controversial claim that could be, that could get him killed. And in fact, it will end up getting him killed as we fast forward into John's gospel. Now, the reason why Jesus, as he says this, is facing the death threats, right? We see the Pharisees want to kill him. It's because they think that Jesus is lying about being the son of God. 
They, they think that Jesus is making a false claim, and because of this, he's actually blaspheming. It's a serious offense in the eyes of the Jews. And, and so serious, in fact, the penalty for this is the death penalty. Anyone who's caught blaspheming, Deuteronomy 17 talks about this, anyone who's blaspheming is liable to be judged and stoned to death. And so Jesus is risking his life in order to stand for the truth that he truly is the son of God. He's not backing down from the threats. Now in this case, if if the, the Pharisees really believe that Jesus is blaspheming, what they need are two or more witnesses who speak the same testimony in unison. So for Jesus to actually be charged with blaspheming, they need two people to say, yep, I've heard him, he's telling a lie, and here's why, and they present their case in front of them. Now, before they can drum up a false testimony, which eventually they succeed at, like, again, fast forward to the, to the end of the, the, John's gospel, they do eventually drum up some false testimony of Jesus. But before they can get to that, this time, Jesus calls his own witnesses to the stand. We see this in verse 31 and 32. He says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. It's not adequate for Jesus to be the single witness about his own identity. And then he goes on to tell us that that there's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. And so Jesus is saying there are people who are witnesses to the claims that I am making. And rather than just bringing two forward, which is what the law would require, Jesus doubles it just to show that he actually is telling the truth. So he brings forward today four witnesses who are going to corroborate his his claim that Jesus is the Son of God. Are you following me so far? Okay. And then here's where things get crazy. As Jesus calls these witnesses to the stand, As Jesus is facing persecution from the Pharisees, this little mock trial takes a wild turn, a turn that is so wild that really it's it's worthy of television. It should be on pay-per-view, right? Pay to see this kind of thing. But right now, I'm going to tell you about it for free. So um, this mock trial that we're about to see unfold isn't just so Jesus can clear his name because the accusations have come forth. Jesus isn't just saying this stuff to defend himself. Jesus actually tells us the reason why, if he is the judge of the cosmos, why he is willing to be um, integrate. no, what's the word? Uh, when you, what's it called when you? Interrogated. interrogated, thank you. He's willing to be interrogated by the Pharisees, and here's why. He tells us in verse 34. He says to the Pharisees, he's saying to us through the scriptures, I say these things that you may be saved. Jesus is not looking to clear his name primarily. He doesn't need to. Jesus is looking to communicate to us so we would see who he truly is and that we would find life in his name. And so the first person that Jesus calls to the stand is a guy that we've been introduced to before named John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is a popular guy. In fact, at this time, it's likely John the Baptist is more more popular than Jesus was among the Jews. John the Baptist has had a ministry that's that's, uh, preceded Jesus' ministry before it started. We've we've seen Jesus' ministry basically just started not too long ago. 
And John the Baptist has been out in the Jordan River baptizing people, talking to them. He's been a messenger saying, hey, there's a Messiah coming. And he's gained notoriety. People have come from all over the place to see what's going on. And so there's this popularity. But there's also a bit of controversy laced in here with John the Baptist. Because uh, just as we see with Jesus, there's a, a uh, contentious relationship with the Pharisees. And and what we're told at the very beginning of John's gospel is that this messenger is come, um, sent from God to bear witness to the light. He himself is not the light, but he's the one that, that points forward to the light that's to come, which is why, excuse me, Jesus calls him in verse 35, the lamp. If you think of like an old lantern, right? The lantern is distinct from the flame inside of it. Right? John is the lantern that contains the flame. John is the, is the lantern that, that puts the flame or the light on display. So Jesus says, he, he, he's, the li- or he's the lantern. I, Jesus, is and the light. And so John is pointing forward to the light. And the moment that John the Baptist sees Jesus, this whole picture, this guy that he's prophesying will come and redeem God's people, goes from being in like 420p to like 8K, like from, from like grainy, fuzzy, old analog television to talking crystal clear, most beautiful, vivid photo you've ever seen in your life. He sees Jesus and he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now this is the testimony that Jesus is pointing back to. John the Baptist proclaimed before all kinds of people that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now every good Pharisee knows that only God can take away sins. Only God can forgive sins. And so they're connecting the dots here. Jesus is helping them to see that when John the Baptist said that I am in the Lamb of God, he's saying that I am God. I am the one that can take sin upon myself and deal with it. In other words, John the Baptist testifies Jesus is God. Now, Jesus clarifies here that he's not God just because some camel hair wearing locust eating guy out in the river said so. He's saying that this message is not from man. This, this is a message actually from God, right? John the Baptist is the last great prophet that speaks on behalf of God. And so that this is validating what is said back in, in John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, that John the Baptist was sent by God to witness to the light, who is Jesus, the light of the world, so that people would believe in him. First, the first witness on the stand, John the Baptist. Makes a pretty compelling case. Now, this first witness is a heavy hitter, and, and we see the case gets stronger with the second. Jesus calls the next witness to the stand in verse 36. He says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works of the Father, for the works that the Father has given to me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. The second witness that's called to the stand are Jesus's own works. Now, if, if you flash back to last week in verse 19, we're told, Jesus says that truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. 
And then if you jump down to verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He's talking about the Father. And so Jesus is making the claim that the things that he does, the miracles, the fact, remember, go back to the beginning of this whole situation, the fact that he healed a guy on the Sabbath, Jesus saw the will of God. He saw that the Father was healing people even on the rest day, and so Jesus did likewise. So his works testify. Now, these works are, are works that no one else can do, works that legitimate miracles that can only be done in the spirit of God, by the power of God. There's no way to manufacture works that are apart from God. It's all, it's all sleight of hand, or, or yeah, sleight of hand, it's all, it's all like illusion. True miracles can only come from God. And so in this sense, it's Jesus' works that validate his identity as the true son of the Father. In fact, we'll look ahead to John 10, 37, where, where Jesus actually tells us, again, makes it very clear, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus points to the fact that his, his works bear witness to his true identity as the Son of God. That's witness number two. The third witness Jesus calls up on the stand is none other than God the Father Almighty. Verse 37, he says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works of the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. In the other gospel accounts, John is is the last gospel account that's written. And so one of the reasons why you have um, John writing things that the other gospels don't capture is because he's adding, he's supplementing to the narrative that's already there. There's, There's no contradictions going on between the different gospel accounts. And one of the things that John passes over that's in every other gospel narrative takes place at Jesus' baptism. When John the Baptist is there, he's proclaimed, this is, behold, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus climbs down into the Jordan River, and he's baptized. And at this baptism, all of the other gospel writers tell us that the, the heavens open up, an audible voice of God the Father is heard thundering. The Spirit of God comes down in the form of the dove, and this is what God thunders out. He says, behold, my son with whom I'm well pleased. Now, this is some of the backstory that if you don't read the other gospels, you don't see this. But here we have an account where, where God himself is testifying that this is my beloved son. This is my unique son with whom I'm well pleased. Now, later on, we'll get to see, uh, well, I guess the other gospels, I, I don't think John actually addresses this. There's another time where God the Father again validates Jesus, his sonship, with an audible thundering voice from heaven. And that's at his transfiguration. Bless you. And so here we have the third witness, God the Father, saying, 
this is my son. Jesus is the son of God. Just as the Nicene Creed this morning that we recited, God of God, true God of true God, begotten, not made, right? God is saying, this is my son. This is the second member of the Trinity. Now, the fourth witness of Jesus' identity is the scriptures, the word of God. And what he's speaking to here is specifically the law and the prophets. You see this in verse 39, where he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. Now, it's important to realize here, Jesus is going head to head. He's, he's in this confrontation with religious people. People who would be carrying their Bibles to church on a regular basis. People who, who understand the scriptures. He's not talking about people who are ignorant of what God's word has to say, but people who really have studied the scriptures. Now, Jesus is not contained as you're missing the point of it. The scriptures bear witness to Jesus. Now, this is important. This is, Christian, if, if you need to know one thing about reading your Bible, is that it's all about Jesus, the whole Bible, all the law, all the prophets, the New Testament, the Old Testament, the whole kit and caboodle, it's all about Jesus. In fact, this week, um, I, I was out in my garage, and um, this guy basically pulled up into my driveway, and we started talking for a minute, and uh, I mentioned to him that I was a pastor. He goes, oh, that's funny you say that. I just, I got, for the first time ever, I got a Bible. Somebody gave me a free Bible this week. I said, oh, great. Have you read it yet? He's like, nope. I was like, okay, well, maybe do that. And... Uh, as you do that, know that the whole thing's about Jesus. Every, every, the, if, you, if you read the Jesus Storybook Bible, uh, love it with our kids. We've, we've probably gone through like three or four of these bad boys. Does a great job. Uh, the, the theme of it is every story whispers his name. Every law, every prophet points forward. Every, every story is truly about Jesus. So Jesus is saying, even the things that Moses had written centuries ago, that stuff, that is about me, these guys that Jesus is talking to, they, they love the scriptures. They're experts in the law. They know Moses, like they know the scriptures, the Torah, which Moses himself wrote. Um, it was given to him by God and he wrote it down. They, they know it so well. It's as if they know Moses. And Jesus uses the thing which they are most familiar with to show their inadequacy, to show that they don't really understand what the scriptures are all about. Now, if, if the Pharisees would have examined Jesus half as closely as they did the scriptures, if they, if they would have given, given him an honest trial, if they would have really truly examined with curiosity, is this guy telling the truth or are we, just, are we just bloodthirsty? Are we just after him? We don't like him. We're trying to put an end to him. They probably would have seen that Jesus, in fact, is the hermeneutical, hermeneutic key that unlocks all of the scriptures, that Jesus is the fulfillment And that just goes to show that if, if when you're reading your Bible, if it doesn't point you to Jesus, you're probably reading your Bible wrong. See, all of the scriptures are meant to point to Christ. Now, again, the Pharisees, they would have known. They would have known the prophecies. They would have known to, to what signs to look out for for this Messiah that's coming. You got things like um, he's from the line of David. Born in the town of Bethlehem, born to a virgin, right? Jesus fits the bill more. Um, he, he's the true and better Israel. So Jesus, after being born in Bethlehem, is exiled 
in Egypt, running for his life. And, and in, the, in that time, Jesus is, is faithful to God and returns. God brings him back, just mirroring the story of the Israelites. Then Jesus, taken out to the wilderness after his baptism, tempted by Satan, doing what Adam and Eve failed to do. When they were tempted with sin, they bit in on the fruit. Jesus said, nuh-uh, I know the word of God. I know that's what I'm gonna stand on. And Jesus resisted. And while Jesus broke the traditions of man, while he broke the man-made rules of the Pharisees, Jesus perfectly kept God's law. All of this stuff would have been very apparent if the Pharisees would have honestly examined the evidence. That they would have come to the conclusion that, that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the son of God, the unique son of God, the judge, the savior. But even there, with all that evidence laid before them, they refused to acknowledge. That shows, listen, as we're on mission, as we're evangelizing, as we're sharing the gospel, you might say all of the right things and people still may not believe you, right? If it happened with Jesus, it's probably gonna happen to you at some point. All of the things were laid out in front of them and they didn't want to see it. They, did, they refused to acknowledge the truth because they didn't want to see it. They, they were obstinate. They, their heels were dug into their own ways. And it even says so in a couple of verses, verse 40 and verse 43. It tells us, verse 40 says, and yet, Jesus is talking to them, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Verse 43 he says, um, if another comes, if, uh, I've come in my father's name and you do not receive me. Yet if another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. Jesus is pointing to the fact all of the evidence is there. Every, every apologetic, every witness testifies the same thing, but they refuse to recognize the truth. And here's where this mock trial takes an interesting turn. The tables get flipped. Where Jesus appears to be the one that, that's on trial, where, where Jesus is the one that they're intending to expose as a fraud, somebody who's lying about being the son of God, Jesus flips it on the Pharisees and he begins to expose them. Jesus shows us that these men who have the accolades of the general po population, these men who are, are held in esteem by the Jewish people, they aren't as righteous and pious as they present themselves to be. And Jesus calls them out here. He calls them on the carpet. He calls them to the stand on ver in verse 37. Check this out. And and the father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. Now here's where he starts jabbing. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe in the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me, that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know 
that you do not have the love of God within you. I mean, Jesus, he's not pulling any punches here. He's, he's saying really hard things. Now, this might seem really harsh. This might seem really cold for Jesus to be like so black and white, so upfront with these religious leaders. But this hard word is the most loving word. This hard word is the most truthful word. Because again, coming back to the purpose of this whole situation, the reason why Jesus is willing to be publicly humiliated, brought out on trial, this mock trial, is because he is saying these things so that they may be saved. That's what verse 34 tells us. He's testifying. He's, he's bearing witness. He's bringing witnesses before them so these guys can see and know who Jesus is and be saved. In fact, in verse 35 or 45, Jesus says, listen, guys, I'm not here to accuse you. I'm not here to throw you in jail. I'm not here to condemn you. Jesus doesn't need to. Because he says there's another one who already stands to accuse you, and that's the law. That's Moses. He says this down in verse, uh, let's see, Verse 30, 45, do not think I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Now, Jesus is showing us right here, and this is, this is so crucial for everybody in this room to hear me. Jesus is showing that it is not only the really bad, vile sinners who need saving. It's not just the Samaritan woman the woman who's running around with a bunch of other men. It's not just this bum of a, of a guy who's sitting up on the poolside, hopeless, despairing. It's not just people like that that need saving. Even the most religious and seemingly put together people need Jesus. So whatever category you find yourself in, you feel desperate, you're aware of your need of Jesus, yeah, you need Jesus. But even if you feel like you're pretty put together, even if you think you've made a pretty good life for yourself, I, I, I've got things under wrap. Listen, friend, you need Jesus way more than you think. A life apart from Jesus, be it licentiousness of doing whatever the heck you want, Right, uh, it's antinomianism, pushing away from God's law. I don't need my, I don't need God's law. I can do whatever it is that I want. I do whatever I, my feelings tell me I want, whatever my appetite, my belly, my 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 lusts tell me I want. That that's that's living a licentious life. You live a licentious life. You're going to live a life that's a, apart from God and futile. The same is true even if you leave, live a legalistic life, that you build your life on trying to perfectly keep God's commandments in your own strength. A, a life that looks at the, the checklist and says, yep, God told me to do that. I did that today. I did that yesterday. Yada, da, 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 da. Go down the line. And you build up a resume of here's my justification. Here's, here's why I know I'm a good person. Here's how I know I deserve to go to heaven. A life apart from Jesus, be it legalism or licentiousness, is futile. It's not going to get you anywhere. 
If you live by legalism or licentiousness, there will be a resurrection that you enter, enter into. It's not the resurrection of life, it's the resurrection of judgment. Now, as combative as this dialogue might seem, I mean, because it is, like you have, you have...